When do you think you were the maddest in your life? Ha! The maddest? Yeah, the most mad. Oh, no. Remember, people are going to listen to this, so there is a bit of culpability that goes into Well, that's a hard discussion. question. Do you mean, like, generally, vaguely, specifically, <laughs> incident-wise? Like, what are you doing? You're jumping all over the oh, place no, here. I just got wires all over oh, my okay. chair. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. What, what Stupid machines. Okay, well, what do you mean by mad? Uh, <laughs> are, we, are we talking about fear? Anger. I'm talking about the anger that sees inside of you. I was the most mad. Um, I don't usually outwardly get angry. If you know me as a person, you'll know that I uh, turn most of my anger inwards to myself and blame myself for pretty much everything that's ever happened. And therefore, my, yes, anxiety, but also my self-loathing, like this skyrockets on a, normally a daily basis. However, outwardly, the most angry I've ever been was... Uh, a moment when I was younger on the farm and me and my sister were trying to chase these cows out of a pen and out into the field. And my sister is five years younger than I am, so she would probably been, what, 11 years old or something like that. And uh, really, as an rational adult right now, nothing that she did really, but yes, like, was in the wrong place at the wrong time and caused the cows to turn around, run back and add more time into this and i let loose a string of expletives and four-letter words and sexist language that i still am upset <laughs> that i use today but i just lost it on her um that's probably the maddest i've ever been in my entire life oh kyle now have you ever gone on a bender you're so sweet and, and got, gentle and gone and killed a bunch of mobsters <clears throat> killed no in his own garage, Kyle has built a machine. Cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen, this monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown, and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This, this is, is Kyle, Kyle and Dave versus, versus the machine. The machine. Your description of yourself as an introvert with anxiety, I, I have that in the sense that uh, self-loathing <laughs> In the fact language. that I don't. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I um, recently learned that the outbursts come from the pent-up, we know this, mm -hmm. uh, the pent-up uh, stress of fighting against, let's say, fighting against life, and there's a trigger. I've been angry, likely, since I was, you know, in elementary school. I've had uh, outburst incidences dating back... Uh, to that time, mm -hmm. a lot of fights. The good thing, the salvageable part of the early part of that career was tended to be this narrative about anti-bullying. So I would fight larger kids or try to protect my brother, presumably, but I would also uh, beat the shit on my brother too. And then um, the first negative, probably uh, bad instance was I, I keyed a teacher's car uh, in grade seven. Uh-huh. Yeah. But uh, what did they do? I don't know how that outcome, I, you know, it's one of those things where um, likely, obviously, my parents and the, you know, everybody would have been involved. I don't know specifically what happened, but I was allowed to stay. the The underlining point of that, in this sort of obnoxious uh, way, is that I was deemed uh, to be in a gifted program. Uh, so I was in that school only because I was in this advanced class. Like I, I had to take a bus to this thing, but I was also like a piece of crap. So. I don't know what those conversations were like. Like if I had just been an average student and I had vandalized something, I should get expelled, I, I presume. But I don't remember any repercussions other than my parents uh, telling me every day that I was uh, going to be a piece of crap the rest of my life. Oof. Uh, even that year, I think, or maybe the last the year after, I, um, I don't even remember why. It's probably unwarranted. But I, we were putting on a stage thing of maybe Alice in Wonderland. And I decided to be, it would it, be. It wasn't my fair lady. <laughs> I thought it'd be funny if uh, um, we were supposed to throw tissue paper apples at some point. Maybe it's Wizard of Oz. Mm, at, that makes uh, more sense. Yeah. yeah at, uh, at Dorothy. And mm. uh, I wrapped a ball in mine mm. and I smoked this girl in the face. Throughout high school, lots of incidents of fighting. I've been angry my whole life, Kyle. Uh, worst physical incident, other than um, being arrested here in Calgary, was probably getting beat up in a parking lot in front of uh, Helen because I tried Oof. three times to pick fights in a karaoke bar. Huh. Yeah. So I can well, go on. Let's, let's <laughs> delve into that maybe later. So um, welcome to 
Kyle and David versus the machine, I guess. <laughs> this is why machine, you better fucking watch it. No, I'm, I'm, uh, Come at me, bro. I'm cured. Look how peaceful I am now. Wow. You're so zen. <laughs> okay, now, David, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm on pins and needles here a little bit. Don't want to get in your uh, bad zone here. Uh, or also, uh, before I drive you home, you're going to like put my face through the windshield. You know, when we get to Fight Club, if we get to Fight Club, who knows what this machine is going to ask us to watch here this year. I'm sure you'll have a lot more to discuss at that time. Unsurprisingly, that that and a few 1999 films were, uh, the VHSs were worn out, actually. I physically mm. broke tapes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We are here to talk about payback. Oh, that's right. I forgot that when I left. Mm-hmm. Mr. Carter on the line. Turn through. I have a problem. There's a man in my office with a gun who says that he's going to kill me if we don't pay him back $130,000 that one of our lieutenants 70, stole from him. Seven, it's 70. Look. How much is this guy Carter worth to you? What do you mean? My money, yes or no? No. Not many men know what their life's worth. I do. 70 grand. This is uh, an interesting movie, as we will soon learn. Uh, what is your history with Payback? Payback's uh, very personal to me. I don't remember specifically how big of a fan of Mel Gibson I was, but uh, Payback's specifically important to me because A, uh, I was living jobless in Hamilton, uh, as I think I mentioned in our last talk, and in the Hamilton Jackson Square Theater, there was a Toonie Tuesday movies yeah and so i would just, I go and see two movies on tuesdays yeah. because of that deal i would just sit there and at the time i would just watch payback uh two <laughs> or three times on the day you are kidding <laughs> <laughs> because uh i think i don't know we'll have to check but i think that week there was nothing maybe she's all that but that's mm. not worth two bucks in that era <laughs> this is why i wish that letterboxd uh had existed which we're posting our ratings and reviews and stuff like that of the movies that we're watching here this this year on this podcast, because I would love to know how many times I have actually seen mm. The Princess Bride. Because oh I'm pretty God. sure I'm in three digits. Well, there was a time I knew it the whole yeah, like, uh, yeah verbatim. Uh, that and Flight of the Navigator, weirdly, were like the two films I watched the most when I was a little kid. My first uh, crying in the theater was Transformers the movie. The cartoon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Not uh, the Michael Bay movie. No, no, Michael Bay's band. Yeah, I don't watch any of his crap. But, mm. oh, that game very personal. You know, See, I'm getting angry. The very, <clears throat> uh, very into the Transformer movies, as you might suspect. Roll out. When Optimus died. Mm-hmm. Christ, Kyle. That was, uh, was Machine here, like, had, like, a little, like, uh, a oil tear when it was, I, I caught it watching it on TBS here the other night. Incredible movie. I still pay for cable, apparently. I, I think I watched that in the last... 10 years and i felt it still held up oh in the guitar tune yeah in its own uh, has my favorite uh fun fact about that the last film credit of orson wells that's right as uh <laughs> oh, i can't remember the baggage name anymore bonkers yeah i'm a citizen kane and then i was in the transformers movie last credit but that voice i think the the thing we have to address here is that uh, we were about to watch a mel gibson movie which he is uh, problematic is the nicest way to talk about Mel Gibson at this point. Well, maybe we talk about that a little bit, but uh, I don't know. I, I'm looking forward to revisiting Payback here and seeing if it still holds up. I didn't come to this until I was in university. Uh, I was a huge Mel Gibson fan. In fact, you know, saw Braveheart when I was younger. I was totally into that. And I saw, I think it was Ransom uh, when I was growing up. Love that. One of the few times I got to go to the movie theaters uh, each year. It was usually on my birthday, we were driving to the big city of Red Deer and go and see a movie. Uh, that's how I saw like The Patriot, <laughs> um, his his guest star spot on The Simpsons. Like uh, I thought he was self-effacing. I thought he was funny. Um, I, I, I have mixed feelings with Mel Gibson now, but at the time I was in. And so I watched a ton of his movies when I was in university too. I know we're only a few years apart, but it's funny to hear you name those movies instead of like Lethal Weapon. Mm. You know, and uh, I know it's weird. It's it's weird that like I like Lethal Weapon, but it's Mad Max. I was just outside of that. I I came to that like years and years later, and uh, I can't remember. But yeah, What Women Want, classic. Listen, you're stealing probably what this machine is going to print out here later on. Let's go watch Payback. Let's do it. I don't know why Dave would be avoiding me. I've been knocking on his door here for like the last twenty minutes. Come on. All right. Well. 
while I wait out here in the hallway. I brought the machine with me, even. Let's break his kneecaps. I, I have no idea what you're saying, but uh, while I'm waiting, let me thank some of our sponsors here this week. As you know, Kylan Day vs. The Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. They also have no problem signing legally binding contracts with sentient machines because uh, that's how I got roped up into this. Let me tell you about ATB a little bit more, specifically the no-fee, all-in digital account. Are you tired of paying bank fees when you can't remember the last time you went into a branch? If I had a penny for every time... That happened. You spoke, ATB listened, and they've created a no monthly fee digital account with a line of credit that makes banking work for you. By doing most of your banking digitally, you'll avoid monthly fees and get unlimited digital transactions. It's 24-7 banking at its finest. You know, I, I joke a little bit, but the simple fact that ATB allows me to actually scan a check and for it to automatically deposit into my account is kind of a godsend in many ways. Running my own business, oftentimes I get checks, you know, a few weeks, months after a project is done, and I want that money in my account now. I don't want to have to drive or find a branch to go to, so the ability to be able to do this any time of the day works really well for my schedule. So visit ATB.com today to sign up for a no-fee, all-in account and discover digital banking that works for you. All right, well, do you want to try one of these ad reads? Oh, wait, no. To, shut up. No. No. I don't even need you. Our friends at Norquest College have this message to share. Your next career move is right around the corner, and Norquest College is here to help. Our new Career Moves Professional Development Program will help you transition to new job opportunities. Funded by the Future Skills Center, we will provide one-on-one -on -one coaching, self-assessments, skill development and training, and up to $2,000 in available tuition credit. Our focus is your success. Make your next move. Apply today at norquest.ca slash career moves. All right, you want to try and like bust down Dave's door now? Holy shit, I didn't even know you had a saw in your chest. And I built you. All right, well, we amazing. did it. We watched oh, Payback. Amazing. <laughs> I'm still, I don't know, I'm still on edge. I still have like goosebumps here Holy on me. Holy crap. That movie uh, holds up for me. Okay, I'm, I'm excited to jump into this here. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Payback. Payback was released on the 5th of February, 1999. The other major releases that came out that weekend was a movie called Simply Irresistible. Simply Irresistible starred Sarah Michelle Gellar and Sean Patrick Flannery, written by Judith Roberts, directed by Mark Tarlov. This was another one of those like um, uh, teen comedies and stuff. So I'm glad that we didn't do like a third <laughs> teen comedy here. Uh, Payback. It is currently rated 7.1 on IMDb. It is rated 46 on Metacritic. It is rated 54% on Rotten Tomatoes and 69% if we're looking at just the uh, consumers, yeah. the people who go and watch movies. It is available on DVD and Blu-ray, uh, but is not available currently as of this recording on any streaming service in Canada. To that point, I would think <clears throat> whether that's a very contemporary thing mm -hmm. with all of the issues post- I don't know what it is. I actually think it's a Mel Gibson thing because he might have. I was, this has nothing to do with anything, uh, but I was trying to rewatch all of his movies uh, for a project I was doing a few years ago. And like Passion of the Christ, Apocalypto um, mm. was the other one. Like none of them were available. The only one that's available is Braveheart. Like Braveheart's available everywhere, basically, that you can get movies. It's but every other movie he's either. Oh, and the Lethal Weapon ones were, were available too. But pretty much everything else is very hard to find. Yeah, that's interesting. Which is weird. I don't know what it is. Well, the other thought I had was it would be interesting to look at those scores and weed out between the eras. Yeah, And no, do an average. That would be really fascinating if you could do that. It's like when IMDb first came on the scene in like the early 2000s, like what were the people rating it then versus what they're rating it now? Uh, the movie does star Mel Gibson as the character Porter. Greg Henry as Val Resnick. Maria Bello as Rosie and Chris Christopherson as Bronson. 
goes through some of those credits. There's some big heavy hitters. That doesn't even cover, like you said, Lucy Liu. It doesn't cover James Coburn that's in this movie. There's some heavy hitters that are yep. going on. So Mel Gibson, he was already a Hollywood draw Superstar. at this point in 1999. His first movie credits was Summer City in 1977. Never seen it. Neither have I, but uh, he absolutely became a star for his role as Max in Mad Max. Uh, which was released in 1979, and then the sequel, The Road Warrior, in 1981, Amazing. and then the third film, Beyond Thunderdome, in Tina. 1985. Shout out. Uh, I, I contend that Beyond Thunderdome, while I don't think is a good movie, the first 25 minutes is. It is phenomenal. <laughs> and as soon as they leave Thunderdome, it's stupid. <laughs> but that first part is so good. He then started in the Lethal Weapon series. Incredible. Lethal Weapon series, uh, where he started as Martin Riggs, uh, that started in 1987, and he would be in the next three films, 1989, 1992, and 1998. So the year right before this, the fourth Lethal Weapon movie had come out. Still holding out hope for that Lethal Weapon 5 coming here. I'm sure they'll eventually make it. Gently. I, I mean, just quickly on Lethal Weapon 1, the uh, darkness of the anti-hero. Mm. Oh, God, that movie's still chilling. The first Lethal Weapon and the first Die Hard are still great action movies. And That's it's like, a great movie, yep. I hate how they eventually ended up <laughs> for most for the most part, but it's Hollywood. That's where that's where we are. Greatest greatest Christmas movie ever made. Die Hard. Sure. Uh, he'd also been the voice of John Smith in Pocahontas and starred in another revenge thriller, Ransom, in nineteen ninety-six. He would also try his hand at directing, starting in nineteen ninety-three with The Man Without a Face. Have you seen that movie? Oh. That's actually a pretty good movie. Yeah. I actually do like that one. But his largest success was with, of course. Braveheart in 1995. Canon. That movie was both hugely critically and financially successful. It would be nominated for 10 Academy Awards, which it won five of, including Best Director for Mel Gibson and Best Picture. Uh, he would go on to direct The Passion of the Christ and Apocalypto. He would act in movies as diverse as Chicken Run, What Women Want, and Signs. And then some let's say uh personal problems popped up in his life audio of an interaction with a police officer showed him having uh, bigoted sexist and racist comments and so was blacklisted for about five years where he really was not in anything however after those five years of the laughs it looked like hollywood was ready to welcome him back into the fold so to speak starring in movies like the beaver which was directed by jody foster which is, again, what? weirdly, I really like that movie. Because it basically is Mel Gibson being Mel Gibson and kind of talking about his problems in a fictionalized way. It, it's a wild movie. Anyways, The Beaver. He would also go to Get the Gringo and Expendables 3. Uh, but he would also get back into directing with uh, the movie Hacksaw Ridge, which was released in oh. 2016, where he was nominated for Best Director at the Academy Awards again. Uh, he did not win. Spider-Man. <laughs> right. I know it's... Not, I can't... Uh, this is where my problematic things go with Mel Gibson, where I don't like him as a person. I'm one of the few people who actually like Taxaw Ridge. I just thought it was an interesting way to uh, go about a war movie where you follow a pacifist for the entire movie, where it's not about him killing people. Anyways, that was, that's, that's me. Uh, his next starring role looks to be in a movie called Boss Level, directed by Joe Carnahan. Its description is... A retired special forces officer is trapped in a never-ending time loop on the day of his death. So it kind of sounds like a combination of what uh, Liam Neeson has been doing with um, oh, that Tom Cruise movie where he like repeats the same day over and over and uh, over again. That's a good movie. Yeah. Uh, shit. Uh, Live, Die, Repeat. Yes. Actually, there's quite a few. But, I, a, but it's actually been named like two or three different things. Uh, anyways. There's a TV show on Netflix with, what's her name? Uh, We're doing great with names today. <laughs> Natasha... She was uh, the the crazy one animal in American Pie, and she played uh, also a lunatic. I think in Orange Is the New Black, but she got her own show. Mm. But it's uh, she keeps repeating the same thing, trying to figure out why oh, she keeps dying. Yeah, it's All fascinating. Right. It's dark. His next directing effort looks to be The Passion of the Christ Two: Electric Boogaloo. That's a lie, but it actually is a sequel to The Passion of the Christ. It's called Resurrection, uh, and that's going to be released in twenty twenty one. Oh, that's Mel Gibson. I, <laughs> I you know, I was going to quip that uh, directing Passion of the Christ and Apocalypto had to be sort of a foreshadowing mm. of uh, what his personality would eventually appear to be. Here's what I say, as, as a 
um, devout atheist, um, I appreciate Christian filmmakers because I love seeing that alternate point of view. Like Terrence Malick is the same thing. I might not love every movie that he's made, but it's like I can see your Christianity coming through this. It's actually very similar to Scorsese. Is like I feel like you can tell like the Christianity and that deep faith is brought into those movies. So anyways, it's a, it's a different type of voice that's being brought in and being shared. I guess just to squash the elephant in the room, I'll just ask you this quickly. I guess this is a double-headed question. Do you think that Hollywood should have allowed Mel Gibson to come back? And if so, why? <laughs> no, well, I want to ask that question leading. again. I feel like we're in a court I and I can just object. I guess w w overall, what is your opinion of Mel Gibson? Yeah, so the I guess he was one of my favorite actors, I suppose, or um, you know, played some of my favorite characters growing up. Was a staunch Mel Gibson fan, hence Payback, which I'm pretty sure was very minimally uh, advertised. I, I think this one, if I remember correctly, it wasn't supposed to be like a Braveheart. It was just thing that almost like flying under the radar, and it was the thing that Hollywood does is that normally in like January and February, that's where they dump the movies they don't think are going to do well in the hope that because it is kind of a lean, lean pickings that they can still pick up a few dollars. As I understand it, Payback had some problems, some reshoots, and then was kind of dumped into a February release. We'll see if it paid off for them to do that. But yeah, I don't, I don't think it was considered to be like, oh, this is going to be a huge new Mel Gibson success movie. So uh, leading into the moment, the more, I suppose, moral or sociological moment, I, <clears throat> I, I liked almost everything he did I, with the sort of exception as a, you know, I guess mid twenties at that time, uh, at the time identifying atheists. Mm -hmm. Once he did Passion of the Christ Apocalypse, I didn't actually watch those uh, films at the time because oh. I was just like, yeah. They, I love Apocalypto, weirdly. I think it's great. <laughs> at the time, I remember being very upset. And so I think at the time I would have just been very, I suppose, bipolar or extreme and just be like, uh, this guy should never be part of entertainment again. But looking back, one of the things that I've learned uh, is this idea that we as human beings attribute. So if there's somebody that has one special talent, we have the obsession, uh, we have the assumption that they are talented in all aspects of their life. And one of the prime examples, whenever I bring this up, is uh, Michael Jordan. So quickly, mm -hmm. Michael Jordan, obviously everybody knows him, great basketball player. He's apparently like the worst human being on the earth. And all of the stories, for example, why he left the NBA and, and uh, what he was doing at the Olympics are not, he's not a pleasant human being. He's an avid gambler. Plus, plus all those alcohol. things he did against the Monstars. <laughs> he, which, he, he kicked their ass. Yeah. Um, so that, I think there's a phenomenon there where on some level, I wonder... You know, especially with all the con controversy that's going on with Hollywood right now, whether we should separate the work from the person. And that's a hard question. I, I know that's the question, but I guess where I come down on it is, I think I do believe in forgiveness, but forgiveness doesn't have to come after someone has made repentance. I can't just be like, I'm going to go away for five years and then come back and be like, well, everyone's forgiven me. I think you have to do a little bit more than that. And I, I don't necessarily think Mel Gibson actually did that. I don't know if he ever really made that plea, whether he did it personally or not. I, I don't know that. I, I just, I feel like he waited out his five years he had some friends still in the business and he was able to kind of trickle his way back in. I'm also part of the problem. I paid full ticket price to go and see Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, so I am part of the reason why he continues to get work. So I cannot really be that big of a critic of his when I'm going and financially supporting him. I think it's absolutely okay if it's like I'm never spending money on him again. And I think we were talking about this off mic and um, it's weird. Normally we only speak when there's microphones in front of us. It's in the contract. So yeah, I'm like, I am 100% part of the problem. And I, and I have to recognize that. I think it's easier to separate the art and the artist when the artist themselves has passed away. Uh, and the example I give is like Alfred Hitchcock was an absolute jerk to his leading ladies. Was abusive, uh, sexually molested. Like he was not nice to those leading ladies. And yet I think it's easier to approach his films and look at just the artistry and not worry about him, the man, being awful because he's no longer here. It's harder to do that when the person is still here and is still receiving a paycheck if we do and go and consume their content. 
So I think that there is that dynamic that goes into that too. That's interesting. I mean, uh, one of the things that I personally am trying to learn not to do is this absolutism. So, right. you know, it's all or nothing attitude. Your observation is a more fascinating one that having to face the problem directly in a live or ongoing relationship creates a lot more tension than, uh, yeah, in just reflection or uh, posthumously. The, the, the other thing too, and there's a video out there, I think it was at the Golden Globes, where Robert Downey Jr. is actually presenting an award to Mel Gibson. And he tells this really personal story about when he was going through the worst of his problems, Robert Downey Jr., drinking, like near death, like just, he was not having a good time. And it was Mel Gibson who reached out, helped him out. When I couldn't get sober, he told me not to give up hope, and he urged me to find my faith didn't have to be his or anyone else's as long as it was rooted in forgiveness. And I couldn't get hired, so he cast me in the lead of a movie that was actually developed for him, and he kept a roof over my head, and he kept food on the table. And most importantly, he said that if I accepted responsibility for my wrongdoings, and if I embraced that part of my soul that was ugly, uh, hugging the cactus, he calls it. He said that if I hugged the cactus long enough, I'd become a man of some humility and that my life would take on a new meaning. And I did, and it worked. Um, all he asked in return was that uh, someday I help the next guy in some small way. Uh, it's reasonable to assume that at the time he didn't imagine the next guy would be him. <laughs> or that someday was tonight. <laughs> so anyway, on this special occasion, and in light of the recent holidays, including Columbus Day, I humbly ask that you join me, unless you are completely without sin, in which case you picked the wrong industry, <laughs> in forgiving my friend his trespasses, offering him the same clean slate you have me, and allowing him to continue his great and ongoing contribution to our collective art without shame. He's hugged the cactus long enough. That video actually makes me cry. I think it's so beautifully stated and said. Uh, I, I, again, I guess what I keep coming down to is I don't know if Mel Gibson has um, reckoned with these feelings that he has. Uh, has he gotten past them? And maybe people out there know this more than I do and have done the research. And I don't know what exactly what it is I'm looking for, because uh, I do believe that someone can do soul searching, can change over time, can can change their character and push themselves to become a better person. Is Mel Gibson doing that actively on a daily basis? Is he using his faith to push forward and being like, I, I faltered and now I want to become better? Or is he just being like, I waited out my time and now I can go forward? I, I think the question then, Kyle, is what is it about Mel Gibson's actions that you feel he owes an apology to the public and to you personally for? I mean, whatever he's yeah, doing in his private that's, life. That's yeah. a good question. I, that, that, honestly, that's, that is a, that's a valid question. I don't think he needs to apologize to me, but I do definitely think that he owes an apology to, say, the police officer that he was yelling at. I think he definitely deserves to apologize to, say, uh, in general the Jewish faith that he had a lot of just ridiculous statements that he mentioned about. I mean, he definitely has a lot to apologize to his wife for that, you know, he was cheating on him. Um, but some of those are moral failings and that I'm, I'm not, I don't really need to get into that, but some of those are actions and those actions, if left unchecked can lead into some very dark territory that I don't feel comfortable with when people in power and money can, can act on those. My final point maybe would be this. I think that the expectation the narrative building, the sort of function of our personal brain to build a story out of what is... So if the factual news bite is this video of him saying these things, we have the implication that this is a, a personalized opinion that he's carried his entire life instead of a, a random outburst that maybe he's, you know, let's say under the influence of something. But, uh, you know, I think there was a, this, the counter story that his father also was a, you know, a Holocaust denier, mm -hmm. etc., but also this idea that uh, if everybody on my side in my biased circle is right and he's offended my people, that uh, he needs to come to us 
on his knees right. to beg for uh, our, our money or our attention. And so I, I don't know. I, I don't want to say that I like, like, you know, when I saw him in The Expendables, it's not like I was like, oh, he's back. It's kind of like, oh, shit, Mel, Mel Gibson, he's still acting. You know, uh, right. it's, you know, so if you're talking about atonement, uh, to use a heavy word, in, in what's ironically a lot of religious narratives uh, that you've brought up, uh, Cal, is, uh, you know, him being not famous for the better part. It's more than five years. I mean, that guy's not been an important person in the right. public sphere for probably more than 10. Uh, and on a personal level, is that something? I, I don't know. Uh, probably not. But, uh, and then, like you brought up earlier, which I think is the even more important or more fascinating question is if he dropped dead today, uh, how different does this uh, conversation mm -hmm. become? And honestly, I, I think you're right. I think I would only talk about uh, Lethal Weapon, Payback, of course. This is a classic. Right. Braveheart, I have actually learned to have mixed feelings about. I tried to watch yeah, it. Yeah, it, it, talking about something that I don't think holds up very yeah. well anymore, but that, if we get to 1995, <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll talk uh, about that. Yeah, robot. So yeah, these are all kind of fascinating questions. Something to chew on. We're not going to solve it today, uh, obviously. Spent, spent a lot of time uh, on it. People okay, have go. probably stopped listening already. <laughs> so let's go on with the credits here. Greg Henry is also in this movie. stars as Val Resnick, we said. He's a prolific character actor. His career started in the mid-70s, where he did a bunch of TV guest spots. His first film was the Western Mean Dog Blues in 1978. And then some of his other highlights in his career are starring in Scarface, the Patriot, another Mel Gibson movie, Raising Kane, and probably the most important for me, seven episodes of Murder, She Wrote. As, get this, seven completely different characters. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. In different makeup? Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Uh, or I don't even know different makeup. This has happened a lot on those old school TV shows where they would have the same guest star, but with a different character every time they pop back up. Uh, anyways, he'd also be in Star Trek Insurrection in 1998, uh, and after this, he's been in episodes of CSI, Firefly 24, Judging Amy. His movie credits have included Slither, United 93, Super, and Guardians of the Galaxy. His latest film is the Canadian movie called Stand, with an exclamation point at the end. Its description is, in post-World War I Winnipeg, a Ukrainian immigrant and a Jewish woman get caught up in a labor strike. It's also a musical. And if you really wanted to, as of this recording, I mean, it is the week that we're we're recording this here, of course. We're live to tape. We can go and see it right now. It's playing just down the street. What? Yeah. <laughs> That's Greg Henry. Uh, Maria Bello is in this movie. Her first film credit was in the 1992 movie Maintenance. Uh, but she was also in the TV show Due South. Canadian Connection, as well as 25 episodes of ER as 25 different... No, I'm just kidding. She was the same character in each episode. Uh, she has won a Screen Actors Guild Award in 1997 for her role in the Best Ensemble in a Drama Series. That was for ER. Uh, after this movie, uh, Payback that is, she'd go on to be in movies such as Coyote Ugly, Duets, The Cooler, A History of Violence, really great, Thank You for Smoking, and Prisoners. She starred in the TV show Prime Suspect, uh, but that was canceled after, I think, two seasons. Uh, she was also in 54 episodes of NCIS. Recently, she has been a producer on some documentary and short films. And up next for her is The Waterman, sequel to The Water Boy. Now, again, <laughs> that's completely lying. Um, it's directed by David Oyelowo. Uh, its description is, A boy sets out on a quest to save his own mother by searching for a mythic figure said to have magical healing powers. Chris Christopherson. I mean, what can you say about Chris Christopherson? But he has had a lengthy career as a musician. A musician, you say? A musician. Uh, could uh, We could just talk about that, probably. But as an actor, uh, a lovely bit of trivia is that his first movie was called The Last Movie in Excellent. 1971. Perfect. Uh, it was directed by Dennis Hopper. Uh, he went on to be in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, A Star Is Born, the Streisand version. Uh, he won a Golden Globe for Best Actor for that. Heaven's Gate, you know, the movie that tanked an entire movie studio. Uh, Flashpoint and Lone Star. Uh, a year before this movie, he'd been in Blade. Another classic, do not do Probably not watch the start it. of the comic book uh, frenzy that's yes. going on. Yeah, first Marvel. 
No, uh, not first. No, Marvel it wasn't. Thing. But it, this kind. I do th- actually credit Blade as being kind of the entry point for comic book movies to be looked at in a bit of a different light. First acceptable Marvel movie. Right. It does not hold up. I'm sure it does not. <laughs> I'm sure it does not. Uh, after this movie, he would continue to focus on acting. He he almost all. When looking at his IMDb, I know that they did. This was a printout from the machine. But if you do look at his IMDb, uh, basically a movie a year for like the last 20 some years. Uh, but he'd be in like Blade 2, obviously. Uh, but in 2001, he was in the remake of Planet of the Apes. He's been in Fast Food Nation, was the voice of his character in the payback video game that was released in the early 2000s. Uh, and he was in the rom com, He's Just Not That Into You. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, his last <laughs> role was in Blaze, directed by Ethan Hawke, which was released in 2018. A movie I have not actually seen, but looks very interesting when you look into it. This is written by Brian Helgeland and Terry Hayes, based on the novel The Hunter by Donald E. Westlake. Have you read the book? Nope. Nope, okay. Let's talk about those writers. Terry Hayes, his first credit was the Road Warrior in 1981. So he has a history of writing for Mel Gibson. He would then work on a handful of TV series. He would return to screenplays for Dead Calm in 1989, Mr. Reliable in 1996, this movie, and then he would go on to write Vertical Limit and From Hell. Uh, It looks like he would turn to novel writing in around 2001, uh, but he does have a screenplay credit for the upcoming film based on one of those novels called I Am Pilgrim, uh, but no word on when that is being released. Is Vertical Limit the mountain one? Yeah, the mountain climbing the, one. Chris, um, uh, with Robin? Cr- Chris uh, O'Donnell. Yeah. yeah. That's a pretty good movie, actually. Helgeland, his first credit was writing for Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. <laughs> <laughs> we remember <laughs> last week we had the first credit or for Matthew Lillard was like uh, Ghoulies 3. So I just like these like schlocky horror films as being the first thing people go into. He would come to acclaim because he wrote the screenplay for L.A. Confidential. Oh, fascinating. In fact, he, uh, well, he won the Academy Award for writing that screenplay. Uh, but he would go on to write the screenplays for A Knight's Tale, oh. Mystic River, Man on Fire, Green Zone, and also the Russell Crowe Robin Hood, which is not great. But, uh, and also the remake of Taking Pelham 123. Hmm. He has a few films that he wrote that are currently in pre-production, including... The remake of Cleopatra. Uh, the next film of his that he wrote that's coming out will be called Wonderland, directed by Peter Berg. Its description is an ex-felon named Spencer returns to Boston's criminal underworld to unravel a twisted murder conspiracy. So maybe it's a sequel to this movie. Now it's also directed by Brian Helgeland. So he wrote the script and Ooh. actually directed it. This was the first film he directed. Previously, he had directed only a single episode of Tales from the Crypt. He would go on to direct only films that he has written, including A Knight's Tale, The Order, 42, and Legend. The next film is Finest Kind, which he also wrote, of course. It is starring Zendaya, Jake Gyllenhaal, and Ansel Elgort. Mm. Now, let's talk about that direction credit for a second, because there's a little bit of controversy when it comes to this. So, he was fired from directing this movie. Three days after he won his Oscar for LA Confidential, in fact. According to Wikipedia, but based on comments found on the DVD extra from Mel Gibson, uh, although credited as a director, because just like writing credits, whoever kind of starts as director kind of still gets credit no matter what happens. So according to Wikipedia, what what went on is about um, a few weeks into the actual filming, about 60 to 70 percent had actually been filmed. He gets kicked off of it. Part of the reason was that his vision for this film was like super dark, like even darker than what this film is. He was going even further. Crazy thing is this. Okay, so following the script rewrites, that's when they brought in Terry Hayes to kind of fill out some of the script and then go back into reshoots. They reshot about 30% of this movie before it was released into theaters. Depending on who you ask, but most commonly it's attributed to production designer John Muir is who is actually the director of the other 30%. The original, which you can actually still find on the Blu-ray, apparently, the uh, the director's cut specifically, all of Chris Christopherson's role was the reshoots. He was not in the original film mm. whatsoever. In fact, you never actually see his character on screen. It's just the voice you hear. And it was actually a woman in his version. It was just a woman's voice that you heard on the phone, and you never actually met them in the film whatsoever. 
The other cool thing, apparently, is that the film's tagline uh, became, get ready to root for the bad guy. That's what the tagline of the film was. And the potentially a controversial scene between Porter and Lynn involved spousal abuse. So this is like the scene where he comes and kind of roughs up his, his wife before you really know <laughs> what's going on and why he's roughing her up in the first place. They did 10 days of, of reshoots, a new opening scene and voiceover track. Um, and Chris Christopherson, of course, was added on. Uh, but yes, you can go to the Blu-ray to find the entire director's cut if you want to delve more into that. The budget was $90 million. Oh. That was mostly because that's really big for 1999. Something that didn't have like a lot of special effects or anything. That was because of all the reshoots. So that turns into about $131 million was the budget for this film. It opened to $21 million. Domestically, it would go on to make $81 million which is about $118 million uh, current day. Internationally, it made another 180. So combined, that's $161 million or $234 million modern day. Really good. So good return. I have a feeling, though, it might be one of those, like, on paper, it didn't make money based on, like, how much those overruns actually cost them and how much advertising they actually did because doing the math, you could make the case that maybe it didn't make any money. Anyways. That is payback. David, hit me. You think this is a stone cold classic? Why do you consider it a classic? I guess I have a I have a bi a nostalgia bias because uh, I watched it so many times. Uh, throughout our, our viewing of it, I could almost it's yeah, fun. It's a fun movie to watch it. if you're into action. I think that the plot is like super interesting. It keeps you kind of guessing what's going on, and it does a really interesting thing. I mean, talking about Mel Gibson, uh, it's a good way to start off this conversation because you start off really not liking this guy he's a jerk he's beating up women uh we don't really know a lot about him and it's slowly revealed over time like what actually happened and what he's trying to do that's the thing about the anti-hero I, I mean it's a i think i mean i couldn't tell you uh, academically but i think it's something that mel gibson either by choice or just by his nature has mm -hmm. always been associated with which is uh whenever he comes on the screen even after he became a A-list actor, you know that he's going to have an edge to him. Mm -hmm. uh, he's and that's with a lot of those action movies, like even with Little Weapon, with Ransom, right. with this one. There is, I mean, this is the thing with uh, with film actors, right? Sometimes you just have that presence. Sometimes you can just bring it. This is why character actors get so much work all the time. It's like hey, I just need someone who can be the smarty police officer, and you know that as soon as they walk on screen, or I need them to be. It's like, oh, well, it's this guy, obviously, because he's done it in every single film that he's been in. So bring him on in. But Mel Gibson has that aura about him. It's like, no, I believe in this guy being like this down and dirty cop guy with, I mean, in this case, he does have an altruistic reason why he's going and, and doing what he's doing. I love the cinematography. I mean, as soon as it opens and you got that blue film noir kind of gritty thing, you know, it's not she's all that. I mean, not to pick on no, one but, movie, but... It twists the 90s all of a sudden where you're looking and you're like, oh, this is like something I might have watched or I could have uh, pulled out of an archive from 50 years ago or well, redone well. It, 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 when you get a great director, I, I like Helgeland is not, I would say, a household name by any stretch of the imagination, but he has that, that style, style and he can actually lean into that a little bit more. It reminds me, how did I watch this movie very recently? We'll never know, but I saw Jojo Rabbit here very recently. And Taika Ratiti, I mean, the way that he just allows things to appear into the frame, the way that he shoots things, it's not just, like you said, and again, not to pick on She's All That, but it's not like, oh, like wide shot, over the shoulder, over the other shoulder, back to wide shot. No, we're going to do some interesting things. We're going to get people to walk in the frame. We're going to follow the character for a little bit. We're going to do some interesting things. Like one of the notes I wrote down while we were watching this movie was simply the reveal of uh, the Mel Gibson character when we first see him. He's revealed in this doorway. Like it's this interesting like framing device that we see. There's this really interesting moment where without having to be explicit, and even though it uses voiceover a little bit, they could have had him say it, but they don't. We see him shot and having those bullets like ripped out of his back at the very beginning. I was going to say and that. And then we see just the scars on his back. So we know, okay, so we know this is a few months later then at the very least. And we don't have to be like three months later, six months later, or like six months ago I was shot in the back or whatever it has to be. It's allowing the viewer to be like, we know you're not stupid. You can pick up on this and we're just going to show it to you and move on. It's like the epitome of showing and not telling. 
Uh, yeah, and I like the, I mean, bring up the opening scene. I don't know if it's courage, but, you know, this idea of having this grotesque, <laughs> disgusting uh, caricature of a uh, back alley doctor. You know? Right. You know, that's a very surprising thing to open with. You're, you get in and you're like, oh, this is going to be gory. Mm -hmm. This thing's going to, at least relative to that era, <laughs> things have changed quite a bit sure. as far as what visu visual violence is. I think the other thing that I love, again, this is a bias, is growing up and loving anime, samurai movies, uh, and then, of course, the Western and spaghetti Western ideology of this like single anti-hero hero. Mel Gibson's so good at that. So I, you get to watch this guy walk frame, for, frame, for, uh, frame by frame, do these certain actions, kill every single human being that he comes across or torture them or maim them or win. Um, but he gets beat up in it, should be dead by the end of the movie. Um, I don't even know if he won. You know, at the end, uh, that's the well, other thing. Well, that's that, what I think is so fascinating about this movie. I think that he has won like a very small battle in the end, at the end of the day. I want to, in a moment, talk about maybe some of the themes that this movie is trying to push towards. But the fascinating thing is he's going after like, $70,000, $70, right? It's so explicit. Yeah. Everybody's like $70,000. Really? Like that's how much you're going after. And you're going after like each top boss successively and trying to take them out for $70,000. And I think what it sums up is like, you're willing to sacrifice your life for just the principle, the principle of the matter. Yeah. I was shot in the back. It was stolen from me. I just want my $70,000 back. And I think you can read some stuff into that about maybe he just literally has nothing else to live for at this point. He just wants his 70,000. And so we can go uh, with it. But that's um, the thing about Samurai movies. I don't hear that at all. Mm -hmm. You know, when I see a movie, when I watched Payback, I see that old school idea of like, you know, the $70,000 is totally irrelevant. It's like, you crossed me, you broke your word, and these are the repercussions. And I'm going to, you know, uh, put them in your face. And that's it. That's the end of the story. And he will go to the full lengths and willing to die for it. It's right. fascinating. I mean, we, as a callback to something we talked about last week, uh, I, I mentioned briefly about this video that uh, Freddie Prince Jr. made talking about the force. What, what he mentions in that video, which I think is very apropos of this movie, he says like George Lucas talked to me one time and he broke it right down for me. You have to realize that the way that every Star Wars movie is presented, each trilogy of Star Wars movie that is presented, it's all about balance. So the teeter-totter might tip over into the dark side for a bit, but that just means that the light is going to come back and balance it. So every, everything kind of comes back uh, in the end. And I think, um, but what I liked about him breaking that down for is like, yeah, like you can basically, if you know that, you'll know the plot of all three movies going forward. There might be dips and turns, but you'll know kind of how everything is going to work out. With this, it's the same thing. It's like the bad guys are up. <laughs> they, they got what they needed. But now this is this uh, character, Porter, coming and actually making everything bounce back out again. And it's that constant teeter-totter effect that's happening in this movie. And like now that I'm thinking about it, in hindsight with his particular brand of hateful Christianity, I mean, there's this apocalyptic thing of this resurrection. I mean, mm -hmm. he's supposed to be dead. He knows it. Everybody around him knows it. And then in his actions mm -hmm. to come back, he's unkillable. It's, it's a weird thing. He becomes right. essentially godlike. But kind of like Bruce Willis made his entire career, at least in the action films, in this way, it's uh, it's not like a, it's not like Twilight. He doesn't take off a shirt and you know he's got right. Vaseline and sparkly things on his chest. He, I mean, the final I torture. I have that right now. That's how we're recording. I I have to wear sunglasses. Um, the final torture scene. Yeah. I mean, how? Uh, oh yeah, like the ball peen hammer just like smacking his toes. I mean, I couldn't do. I would be out as soon as they brought the hammer. I was like, okay, I'm gonna give you names. But that's the, that's the that's the best part of the movie. It's like you're the tension of he's not even gonna like. Why would he let them do that? I mean, there's actually no reason to go that far. The mm -hmm. the rest of the, as we learn, the rest of the uh, <clears throat> plan is set up. But there's another principle thing. He's just like, you know what? You know, I, I just don't give a shit about what you guys think is aggressive or or like what do you think is threatening to me? It's fascinating. I want to talk about Maria Bello's character. Uh, because I think she's a pretty interesting character too. And, and interestingly enough, I, I didn't really check it. I don't know if this necessarily passes like the Bechdel test. Are you familiar with that no. at all? Uh, the very, very briefly, this was coined by this cartoonist named Alison Bechdel. 
and I, I should point out this is not meant to be like this is a good film or a bad film. It's just the thing that when you see how many films can fail it, it's eye opening. Which is, does the film feature more than one woman character? If it does, do those two characters have a conversation? And if they do, does it involve something other than a man? Mm. So few films can actually pass that. I forget. I think even like the best Hollywood year, it was something like 30% or something mm, movies passed it. Again, it's not saying that if you do, it's a good movie. And if you don't, it's a bad movie. It's just interesting to see that statistic laid out in front of something that should be so easy and done. Anyways, I'm not sure if this passes it or not. Does not. But, but her character is fascinating because she is playing, I mean, to a certain extent, like the hooker with a heart of gold. Like that's kind of like her character type. Yep. But I think she does bring a little bit extra to it. I, I think actually the two main women, her and Lucy Liu, even though Lucy Liu then there is there for kind of titillation, uh, Maria Bella does bring that that little extra oomph to it. I think that great actresses can, which is like you're not given a great role necessarily, but you can bring something to it that makes it memorable. I don't know if you have anything specific to say about her. No, I, I think that's a fair thing. I mean, the characters pretty you know run-of-the-mill in a in a sense of that style of uh of storytelling but she definitely can bring us into a sense of empathy so whether it's i mean i couldn't i would have to sit here and watch it many times and like actually study it but yeah she she's great in it i think um you know i found myself drawn to this idea of trying to guess at what the relationship was and then I mean, to the end, it gets a little cheesy and a little mm -hmm. too Hollywood. Uh, this is likely the rewrite. And yeah, that the again, the the reshoots added in a lot of that voiceover yeah. and stuff too. Uh, it actually saved the dog as well because apparently in the original he shoots the dog and it that's it's dead. But that's how I mean, especially in the modern era. I'm like I'm thinking of you know the John Wick movies, etc. Which is also this right. is a precursor. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about that, but only the Matrix. This is essentially a very linear precursor to the john wick mm -hmm. uh, franchise where a dog allows him to go and destroy the entire underworld although it's not a dog is it it's the memory of his wife but you know it's um it's interesting and, and in a way this movie is also the memory of his wife she yeah. turns on him his partner turns on him shoots him in the back leaves him for dead and steals his seventy thousand dollars and that's really what sets this up I think that's what's great. It's like, next time, make sure he's dead. Like, that's yeah. what they say. Um, I also like the idea, uh, talking about, could this have been resolved any other way? But Mel Gibson does say in this, this movie, like, I don't know anything else. Like, I don't know how to do anything else. So I think it's his idea, like, we're going to get this money and then go off and do, I guess, something. But, I mean, he's always probably going to have this job <laughs> this we're is working with the heavies and working with the under the cd underbelly of wherever he ends up and this in is canada apparently according to the voiceover uh, this is my affection for this too it's the spaghetti western borrowing from the sam the ronin samurai narrative where you get like a lone swordsman who's um, who's past the warring era of his life and all he knows is uh you know tact uh tactics and and killing I mean, I guess it is kind of this combination of like the samurai epic versus like a film noir, right? Where it's like you meet all these really interesting cast of characters. Our main character goes through and meets all these people as he like works his way up the chain to get some sort of um, revenge is usually what they're what they're doing. And there's that honorability to it. Now, I guess you can decide if how you want to define honorable, but I think that there is that element that's there too yeah that's and that's the thing it's amoral in a traditional good uh right and wrong sense you either identify with the idea of uh typically a man all male writers but a single person with a set of values in this case uh you do me one wrong i'm gonna do you much worse type of thing mm -hmm. um and it, i think that sense of gray area honor is uh, something that I'm appealed to. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there is a slew of people that might find this movie heretical, offensive, and uh, should have been oh, blacklisted sure. uh, just for the topics and the themes that it might represent. But I look at it and it's kind of cartoonish. I mean, I don't believe for a second that this is something that would inspire someone to commit acts of violence to another human being. No, but I think it's, it's what the strongest parables tell us too. It's like, this is not an actual story that actually happened necessarily, but we can use this story in this framework to give off a moral and to give off 
um, some type of lesson. Because I think what you kind of mentioned before is, did he win? Like, he's beat up. He can't walk. He's losing his blood. He still doesn't have his wife. Sure, he has the $70,000, but how much is that going to last you? Even but, in 1999, that's not going to last you for that long. That's the part. Uh, the, like, I mean, leading up to this, I'd forgotten a little bit how Hollywood, the ending, actually turns out to be. And in my mind, I was thinking of what the original cut likely would have been, which is that only he would have walked away mm-hmm. uh, with intense, you know, some regret of how he lost this woman and the dog, etc. But it would just, in the samurai, in the old Kurosawa sense, he would just be walking off into a sandstorm. And you have no idea. He could be dead the next five minutes. He's bleeding. And Mad Max starts. Right. And, uh, and that's the thing I was thinking a lot about uh, in the Kurosawa Ronin uh, sort of senses. All of this, like Yojimbo, Sinjiro, like, he walks into this little village, he entangles himself into some drama. He ends up needing to kill everybody, although that's not his intent, as he allegedly, as he walks into the village. And then at the end, he has no money, he's earned nothing, he's beat up, all he has is his honor, and he walks away. And it's this, it's this cartoonish thing where it's almost maybe, you know, if we're going to go into that toxic masculinity thing, but <clears throat> you get into this sense of like, yeah, can I live my life this way? Is there something that I believe in so much that it'll get my toes smashed in by ball peen hammers mm-hmm. uh, which i think is cool a quick other note is uh i mean comparing the two i was watching um the sort of reflective on uh, both kurosawa and toshiro mufune and uh, mel gibson and mufune i think are uh, great parallels mufune yeah. i realized uh, he's the this, actor that's in a lot of the kurosawa yeah he's movies. The, yeah. one of the main always the big uh, main yeah. uh, guy he's like uh they talk about how he's this amazing physical actor. So in every film, he would have a, a certain physical idiosyncrasy. So whenever he would appear on the in the frame, you always knew. Even if it was like 200 people in the shot, you knew exactly where he was. Mel Gibson does this so well too. I mean, from the action sequences to how he fights, to his uh, gritty facial expressions, to wherever he is, he's got this uh, presence in all his films. And particularly in Payback, it reminded me of that. Like, I, I really liked... You know, just his persona. It's yeah. fascinating to, to watch him walk through that. It was great. I know you've already said that there's a cartoonish uh, nature to this film, uh, but do you think there is any more ultimate point that they're trying to make? And why I'm pushing this narrative a little bit is that we have this, what they call, I think, the organization or the corporation, whatever they say, and it's a lot of a bunch of, like, bean counters. To me, and this is me re- being an English major and reading too much into it probably, it feels like this is trying to do a comment on corporate culture of some kind where you have a, the customer, quote unquote, of Mel Gibson trying just to be like, listen, I just treat me, just give me my $70,000 and I'll leave you alone and go away. That's all he wants. And it's like, no, no, no. And it forces him to keep going up the chain and causing this destruction and ultimately the fall of capitalism. So I'm just wondering, <laughs> am I reading too much into this, David, or is there something to that? In my opinion, yes. I think, in my opinion, it's uh, the uh, it's the polar opposite. I think it's about socialism. No, no, uh, not polar opposite. What's the a better term? I think that uh, it's in my mind a film based on that old school gritty idea of uh, a man and his honor, and then it's corporate America's influence that is reflected in how they have to stage the film. So I don't think the intent is to make a commentary about, you know, society and politics. I think it's just, how do you, for example, draw a parallel na- a narrative to a small village in Japan? Well, it's got to be this, you know, city, what unnamed urban city in the, in the, uh, in the United States. And then how do you get a gang? Well, gangs are now all mafias. They're all these, uh, criminal syndicates right and then how do you represent a syndicate well there are these pyramid structures that whomever you hit at the bottom is somebody that's subjected to the next person so i don't think in my mind anyways that it was uh, intended to kind of tell people to get out of their jobs for example i think it's the it goes the opposite way i think it's influenced by existing culture in my mind if it's a social commentary there's no need to bring a a dominatrix into it right you know it's it's a play against uh, what's his face is you know sadistic character to bring out how evil and empty and and foolish he is too. But speaking of Maria Bella, I mean Lucy Liu brings. There's so many movies where they try to do this, where they try to bring a quote unquote hot woman to play a bad guy, and she's just trying to um, 
appeal to your perverse desires as a as a you know a heterosexual a disgusting man but lucy Liu in this film is why i thought she was amazing and i think this is why she got an acting career is she gets this what's likely kind of a shitty role actually it's you know you just go and sit in a tight bra and punch guys in the face and i actually kind of found myself like drawn to her and wondering who she is she's got these weird lines and it's weird that's, that's always the mark of i guess at least an interesting film which is i kind of want to know more about that character right like i'll buy the six issue limited run comic book of just her backstory or like what she's up to well even the scene where i mean it's one thing that she's this domination but then she rolls up with the, Chi uh, the chinese or japanese gang and she looks like the boss of them mm -hmm. So, you know, you get this thing like, what, what more is there? There's there's so much. And then and then she's written out of the story entirely. Yeah. Yeah, that's too bad. Like, I mean, I think that in, in a way, and this could be due to the rewrites or it could be due to multiple different factors. It does have a few different plot threads that don't really do anything. No. I, I guess you could look at them as red herrings to an extent, but uh, I wish that it could be even that just a little bit better where everything kind of combined at the very end yes where we do see lucy Liu come back into it where we do see the syndicate come back where we do see everything kind of all hit at a head at the same time and then have the resolution afterwards i think we may have a predilection for whodunits anyway so maybe well, that's true yeah. enough yeah um i just wanted to mention very quickly here we don't have to spend much time on this but i did like there's a, a line that happens with like the two cops that are following our main character around and one of them comes out uh, or someone comes out and like leans on their door and one of them says uh don't let the bastards get you down that's actually a lyric from a chris christopherson song oh wow. and i only remembered that when i was listening to chris christopherson on our, my way uh, back from a uh, trip recently <laughs> not your house where i was watching this movie that <clears throat> certainly yeah. is not the, the case well played uh, well played <laughs> all right so the the machine here is uh, getting upset we've talked about payback here let me give you some trivia so mel gibson still contends that he thinks that the film uh, should have been shot in black and white uh but that audiences would have wanted a color image and i, I can't say that he's wrong really oh he's right yeah. it's like uh i was telling you road what is it? mad max yeah. uh, road to fury or whatever what's it called fury <laughs> mad road. max fury road uh mad max fury road i watched it in mm -hmm. black and white and it's better yeah yeah it's insane that's uh, great and this movie could have been better depending on how they do the creating and how mm -hmm. it actually comes up in the end but that's all the problem like i said at the beginning was based on the novel the hunter there was another film that they made based on the hunter it was released in 1967 it's called point blank and it starred lee marvin i decided to watch that and um because we were told what we were watching last week and I found that out as a little interesting trivia point. Um, so same basic plot point, but a very, very different movie, almost a psychedelic movie starring Lee Marvin. But the same beats are there, except the, <laughs> what they do is that he's actually escaping Alcatraz. Mm. So he's like backstabbed and like betrayed by his wife in Alcatraz, he still escapes, then he goes through, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it has a much more depressing and um, uh, uh, ambiguous ending of what actually happens at that at the end i just want to point out too lee marvin i had to look it up because i was it was bothering me he looks like 60 something in that movie i looked it up he's 42 and yeah. he's like because i thought it was weird because he's and margaret is like the uh, the heroine basically playing the maria bello character and she's like 30s i'm like this is weird why are they like <laughs> In this relationship it like reminds me of the roger moore last film he made of james bond where he's still like making out with 20 year olds i'm like this is weird i don't Isn't like that this all james bond movies but anyways let's keep going um <clears throat> anyways he was actually 42 and this is why you don't smoke and drink every day of your life for like 30 years no it's mostly genetics yeah i think i was thinking about watching this i don't know how mel gibson how old mel gibson is in this but i started thinking I feel like he's had deeply furrowed brows his entire, his entire career. Time. Yeah. So this movie was supposed to be released in 1998, but because they had to do the reshoots, when they were going to release it, that's when the other movie studio was going to release Lethal Weapon 4. Ah. So it's like, uh, we probably don't want to release two Mel Gibson movies at the same time. So that's Jet why he got pushed back to be here in February Can't of 1999. Can't fight Jet Li, too. No. Yeah. This, this that was a big... Two, uh, 
we have Jet Li, we have Lucy Liu. That's just too much star power well, in the same weekend. Introduction of uh, a renowned kung fu star in an action film. That's in, right. Well, no, it's probably post Jackie Chan. But anyways, let's keep going. Last one. We mentioned this. We thought it was weird in that one scene. Actually, it's around the Lucy Liu scene almost. But it's like there's frosted or dirt windows that are going on in the back of that car. And we're like, why? Why is it like that? Like when they start driving, it's they're not frosted, but when they're in the back, they are. So the reason they had to be shot with the windows fogged up was because spectators were lining up the street to actually watch the filming of the movie uh, because they're magically clear when they when the car pulls down into the alley. So they like we have to get this film so let's fog out the windows and like so that the people crowding around uh, can't be seen. Quick thought on driving uh, part of the era where you didn't have to look at the road. I, oh my gosh like for like 10 minute sequence just like staring not at looking at the road it's so infuriating with several cuts just so that you know he is not looking where he's driving on an urban street in a limousine it was it was incredible <laughs> he's just a great driver so moment of truth david are you going to rate this movie you know i i'm gonna go as high as a four i i would Ooh. actually re-watch this movie right now i really enjoyed it and you know, the other thing that I like about it, uh, it didn't date itself by using technology or anything. It kept mm -hmm. that film noir thing. So I think it ages. Other than the, like the rotary telephones that show up a couple of times. But, but I think it's the, like a period drama. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, here's where, where I come down. I also really like this movie. I think it's solid, I, but I don't think it really does anything to like advance it um, or make it be like at the top of any of the genres that it's playing around with. I'm going to give it a 3.5 which uh, as an average is 3.75. However, we round down. So that is going to go into the list as three and a half. It's a 3.5, which puts it at number one. That's <laughs> another, a great movie. another number one movie here we have. Uh, our second movie, of course, She's All That. Uh, if you do want to take a look at this list and all the other movies that we've talked about, uh, you can go to our letterbox, which you'll find in the show notes. Well, we have talked a whole heck of a lot. I just have to say, David, that um, it's been an honor doing this podcast with you. I know that I lock you to the desk here when, when, when we're recording, uh, but you don't put up much of a fight anymore, which is appreciated. If you want to, though, anyone who's listening, Kyle and Dave versus the Machine, we're available anywhere you can download podcasts. If you can do all the standard stuff, go and rate it on iTunes. But you can also rate it on Spotify. You can rate it on Google Podcasts, and it helps us out a whole heck of a lot if you do that too. And you want to say, David? I don't know what this is all about, machine. But Kyle and I are going to figure this out, man. We have to get to the. We're getting to the bottom of it a little bit. Of why? I mean, I, I, part of me wonders if the apocalypse would be all that bad. To be honest, I mean, we've saw some kind of decent movies here the last couple of weeks, so it's not been like a torture or anything that's not a mystery science theater thing that's going on but at the same time what are the motivations how has my brilliance been so good that i was able to make something as brilliant as this machine i guess i've just flown too close to the sun dumb luck well let's see what we're seeing next week we are seeing message in a bottle i don't know what that movie is that sounds like a kevin costner movie is that right it might be i don't know if i had to guess and having never heard this, of this movie at all it sounds like kevin costner and a guest appearance by paul newman but i don't know that's just what the name of the movie sounds like to me i i read that in the in the title too i was just thinking if there's going to be a message in a bottle right yeah in a bottle right i mean not who on else? a bottle but in a bottle who else would be in this film of course that's right i'm ready well, here's your hacksaw. You can take the, you can go through the chains. Uh, it wasn't locked, so oh. I'll just let myself out.